Thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. How's it going, everybody? And welcome back to Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me as always is Mike Van de Bogart. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in. It feels great to be back, Joe. I know we both had some interesting trips while we were gone. Yeah, I um, besides the, the Rockies trip, I know we've, we recorded an episode since then, but I spent four and a half, five days in the backcountry of Montana, Glacier National Park, and it was absolutely stunning. Just one of my favorite parks. I know you and I went there, what was it, five years ago? Yeah, it has to, yeah, five years now. It was a while ago, <laughs> but uh, we actually stayed at the 50 Mountain site that we were, we were at. Uh, we went to a couple other places, just really, really beautiful. Ended up covering about 62 miles in that period of time, so we were really moving, but it was it was a great trip. Didn't run into any bears. Uh, talked Always to a good. couple of the rangers about their missing persons case they're working on now. So uh, got some got some good information. Might have to do an episode on him in a little cool. bit just to talk about that guy. Cool. Yeah. So you were out in Glacier, and I was actually up in Alaska about a month ago, and it yeah, wasn't that looked re- amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really uh, what you'd call a hiking trip, but we did get some hiking in. Uh, I went hiking with a buddy in Denali for a day. And then we did some hiking to a glacier near Anchorage, and we also did some uh, sea kayaking around a glacier called Spencer Glacier. So uh, it's really cool. I recommend Alaska to anybody that uh, can get up there. We had a lot of issues with forest fires while we were there, so the the air quality towards the end of the trip was pretty subpar. But uh, we were able to get all all the good hiking in that we could, so it was a great trip. No, it's excellent. You stayed out of the triangle, though, right? No, we were, we, Denali's <laughs> in the heart of the triangle. You, so. you were right in the triangle. You made it out, so that's good. I went into the triangle, the Alaska Triangle, and came out, so it, it can happen. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so besides uh, the trips we were on, we, we do have you know one exciting update. We mentioned this on our last episode before the break. We have been in contact with some people that have known Arvin Nelson. This is a guy that we did one of our cases on a while back. One of the guys has known him for a very long time. The other guy did some hiking with him. So we are planning to have an interview with these guys to kind of shed some light on Arvin and uh, bring to light some information that's not publicly known. So stay tuned for that. I'm not exactly sure when we'll drop that at this point, but it will be in the next couple of months. Yeah, we got to coordinate with them first. And I'm I'm personally very excited because a lot of the times when we do these episodes, we 
we work off the information we can get from police reports or from news broadcasts and it's you know some of the times if anyone's ever been interviewed and then seen what their interview is like in the paper afterwards there's a lot of stuff that can be missed out so we were contacted by these group because they said there was a couple things they wanted to correct us on there weren't there weren't any major differences but it will also help shed a light on the type of person arvin was and and give us some better insight into what could have happened yeah so it's uh exciting that they they reached out to us and are willing to talk with us it, you know it's very personal when you know somebody and they go missing and you know nothing's found of the person so we appreciate you know that uh one other thing we do have a amazon storefront and Joe and I have been putting products on there that we highly recommend and have used in the backcountry. So if you want to help the show out, go to our storefront and purchase. We've got tents up there. We've got different types of climbing gear, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that you can use in the backcountry. And every sale, uh, we get a little portion out of it. And it, you know, helps us keep the lights on. So, you know, if you're in the market for any, any new hiking gear, check it out. And we'd like to uh, thank this week's sponsor, Verger. Uh, they've been helping us out mostly through the first half of the show, so we're glad to have them back uh, when we restart these episodes again. I've been recently, and I think I posted about this on Facebook, I've been using their shave stick, and it's uh, this thing like you replace your shaving cream with this stick and you rub it on with a little bit of water. And I'm, I'm not even lying about this, okay? I have to say I'm not lying about this. I would never shave with a razor for like the last three or four years because I just get redness and bumps and all the all the annoying You're stuff. Very so I got one of those man. Norelcos. I am, I am. <laughs> but uh, I got a Norelco for the longest time and just used that and I would just do it every day, not a big deal. So I started using this and I was told by the guy, uh, one of the guys who owns it, he's like, you know, just, just give this a shot, use a razor again and you won't believe how well it works. I said, all right, fine, I'll, I'll give it a stay in court. I've been using it for over two weeks now. I've had no redness, no breakouts, no nothing. It's actually, I can't believe how well it works. So I know I know they're paying to have messages on here, but I have to honestly tell you, I haven't been able to shave with a razor until I started using this, this CBD shave balm. So check out their website. They're releasing some soaps, conditioners. They have lotions. They got the shave balm, the pain balm, all the stuff. I use almost all of it. It works great. Uh, so yeah, give it a shot. And I think we threw up a code on there. If you do a uh, promo code locations unknown, you'll get an extra 10% off your order online. And they said they've been having some issue with the payment processors as many hemp and CBD dealers I have been across the country. So if there's any issues with checkout, you can email those guys directly and they'll take care of you. So again, thank you Verger for, for helping out the show. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. February 24th, 1978, a group of friends from Yuba City, California, set out on a trip to watch a basketball game. Afterward, Gary, Jack, Jackie, Ted, and William drove up into the Plumas National Forest and were never seen again. On this week's episode, we will investigate the details surrounding the disappearance, the subsequent finding of the bodies, and more importantly, the timeline surrounding the recovery. You are listening to Locations Unknown.
The Matthias group was made up of five friends, Gary Dale Matthias, Jack Mudruga, Jackie Hewitt, Theodore Weir, and William Sterling. The group ranged between 24 and 32 years of age. They all had developmental disabilities to some extent and were all enrolled in a day program for the mentally handicapped. None were profound enough that they were unable to function in society. Gary had schizophrenia and was on medication to control his symptoms. Jackie had a low IQ but hadn't been diagnosed as mentally disabled. Both Gary and Jack had actually served in the U.S. Army and had driver's license. Ted Weir was employed for a while as a janitor and a snack bar clerk, but quit at the urging of his family, who thought his slowness was causing problems. Jackie Hewitt had a slight droop to the head. He was sometimes slow to respond. William, Jack's good friend, was deeply religious and would spend hours at the library reading literature. He focused on teaching religion to the patients in the mental hospitals. Jackie and Ted were very close. Ted was described as looking after Jackie in a protective sort of way and would dial the phone for him when Hyatt had to make a call. Gary was an assistant in his stepfather's gardening business. He was discharged from the army after drug problems that developed in Germany five years prior. Gary took several drugs to treat his schizophrenia. There are also police records that show Gary had become violent on occasions and was charged with assault twice. After his return from Germany, he failed to take his drugs and lapsed back into a disorientated psychosis that landed him in the VA hospital. So we have, and I know that was a lot of information to dump on here, and I know, Mike, you and I talked about this before the show, that it might be hard to keep up with some of these names. It was hard when we were doing the research to really get through it all. The idea is we wanted to give a background on each person to show that although there were some developmental disabilities, they were high functioning enough that they could drive a car, go out unsupervised, they would go to the library, study. They were in the army. Like that. Some yeah, of them. they were in the army, although they were discharged. So they're they're high functioning enough that they are able to go about daily lives. They're just a part of a daily program. An interesting thing for anybody who reads the Missing 401 books, one of the main connection points to a lot of disappearances is the fact that these adults or sometimes children have mental disabilities. So it's just something to think about. This this is kind of a, has been a documented phenomena among people that go missing in the, in the wilderness. So it's just an interesting sidebar. Absolutely. And I, w- I would say we should also say a disclaimer too that we're going to be very blunt about facts in this. So we in no way want to misconstrue and make anyone think that we are speaking lightly about developmental disabilities. When we talk about these cases, we are going to talk about the facts and we may make analysis based off of the type of disability they have and make assumptions based off of potentially what could have happened to them as a result of their disability and how that might have hindered or helped the situation. Great point, Joe. So this group went missing in a national forest called Plumas National Forest. It's located in, I would say, northeastern California. It's near the, you know, what they call the terminus of the Sierra Nevada. The forest is about 1.15 million square acres. So, you know, to people to picture that, it's a couple hundred thousand acres smaller than Delaware, but 
a few hundred thousand acres larger than Rhode Island. You so. know what? That's what I would have guessed. I would have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's a pretty, uh, pretty large national forest. The forest was named after, now I'm going to probably butcher this, a watershed called the Rio de las Plumas. <laughs> that sounded right. It looked, it looks right. But then it was renamed to Feather River. So this is a very popular forest in the area. Outdoor enthusiasts are attracted to it year-round. There's lots of streams, lakes, deep canyons, mountains, valleys, meadows, and lofty peaks. So you can imagine going to this forest, and it has everything. It's got, you probably could do some fishing, maybe some rapids you could whitewater in, some climbing, a lot of hiking. I, In the research of the location, there was over 300 miles of hiking trails. The elevation in the, the forest ranges from between 4,000 and 7,000 feet, so you're not talking anything too difficult if you're hiking. There's campgrounds at every elevation that you can you can go to. There is a there's some recreational areas that you can ski and you can do water sports. Uh, so yeah, it, you know it sounds like a pretty cool place. You know it's got an alpine climate in some locations with the you know the mountains going up to seven thousand feet. Interesting fact is the the Pacific Crest Trail actually comes through the forest. There's seventy five miles of trail, and in order to get across you know through this trail, you gotta cross two major canyons and go from elevations of 2,400 feet up to 7,000 feet. Oh, wow. So that's a major, uh, it's a major portion of that trail then. Pretty tough part of the trail. This forest has a very rich history with humans. In my research, I found that there's been a human presence in the forest going back 8,000 years. So there's been a lot of Native Americans in the forest. There was a lot of gold mining in the 1800s. Um, there was a, the Hudson Bay Fur Company is famous for uh, being stationed in that region. So there's a lot of rich history with um, American Indians and then early early American settlers, you know, going out there looking for gold. Kind of the same story you see in any part of the West. <laughs> yeah, I know, really. I was going to say, do we ever find out if there was any major successes in the gold mining in any of these? Because I always see where it says, oh, they mine for gold. There's lots of this. But so many people went out there and so few actually made it rich. Probably the first guys. and then i mean back then it probably took a year for word to get back to everyone on the east coast and by the time those guys made it out there the gold was probably gone but yeah (laughs) um, so if you're the first guy out there you probably made a boatload of money there you go first mover advantage picturing wildlife in this area it would probably be similar similar to other locations in california i'm picturing like yosemite mountain lions other stuff like that mountain lions you know black bears things like that so yeah, pretty cool place. I, I would love to live near something like that. I mean, anyone that lives in California pretty much has access to all these great places. I mean, every place we read about, because I've never even heard of this one before this story. And I know. At first, I was like, oh, it's just some little national forest that you get. And it's giant and has tons of hiking and camping and all these other great things. So If you you live in the region, this would make a great multi-day backcountry trip. 300 miles of trail you know it's a big forest size of Rhode Island I mean you can get back there for a while and you know this kind of you got to think about the terrain and you've got some people that you know are you know mentally disabled Um, you know maybe that factors into their disappearance we'll we'll find out yes yes Mike Mike has not gone through the timeline at all so he'll be hearing this raw we'll get some organic responses from Mike 
I went through the story multiple times, but there's still there's a lot of information here. So if we do run over, we might break this up into two episodes where we don't want to make everyone sit on here for hours at a time. But I'm going to just dive right in then, uh, unless you have anything else to say about the National Forest, Mike. I, I would just add that, you know, I'll add it to the list of places I'd like to someday <laughs> yeah. visit. We're going to have a big <laughs> retirement list of just places to go. Which is ironic because it's always places where people disappear or have meet some sort of yeah. unfortunate <laughs> end. But, you know, the it's thousands of people go there just fine. So, like, like you said, you made it in and out of the triangle just fine. <laughs> I did. All right. We're starting our time off here. It was 1978, and we're starting on a Friday. So it's Friday, February 24th, 1978. So we, we mentioned in the beginning this group was going to a, a basketball game. So... They actually had quite a ways to drive. So this group drove 50 miles from Yuba City, which is where they all lived, to Chico to attend a college basketball game at California State University. So they're at the game, no real issues there. The game ended at 10 p.m. and the group left and stopped three blocks away at a marketplace. And the reason we knew this information is because in the police reports, they interviewed the guy who was working there, basically the clerk, because it was noted that they mildly annoyed the clerk. So it might have been one of those situations where, like they said, they're high-functioning adults. If you don't know that they have an issue, they could probably come off as being obnoxious or whatever, but that's just how they are if they have their their different mental disabilities. So the clerk was trying to close up, and they came in to buy stuff, and that's, I guess, what annoyed them is... So what they do know is that they were there for sure. They bought a Hostess cherry pie, a Langford lemon pie, one Snickers bar, a marathon bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. They were supposed to drive back after the game, no issues. So now we're back, we're on Saturday, February 25th. This group was actually set to play a basketball game of their own because they were part of a tournament that would net them a free week in Los Angeles if they won. So they had a tournament back in Yuba City that they were going to play in over the weekend that they could have won a free prize and spent some time in L.A. Just to to help listeners with locations, Yuba City looks to be about 20, 25 miles north of Sacramento. And then Chico is just up the highway, like we said, another 50 miles. So it may be more than 25 miles, but... It's north of Sacramento and directly west of the National Forest. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, it's good information, honestly, because it's, especially for people that aren't, aren't in California, for looking it up on a map, you can find it a little bit easier. So um, essentially, because there, a lot of them live with their parents still, their clothes have been laid out in the evening of the 24th before they left for Chico. So they're excited about getting back to this basketball game. So right away, that's important information to know to... Because you always wonder, is there an aspect of them purposefully not returning? They had a fun thing planned that they are going to do on the weekend. They went to a basketball game before their own tournament weekend. They had their clothes laid out uh, before they left. They played for, it was the Vocational Rehabilitation Center is where they played basketball. So that was their team. They were the Gateway Gators and the team. Ted Weir had asked his mother to wash his new white high-top sneakers for the tournament, saying, we got a big game Saturday, don't you let me oversleep. So they specifically, you know, they, they were excited about this. You know, it was a big basketball weekend for these guys. They were really, really... The days before about. iPhone alarms. I know, right? <laughs> so when the group failed to return to Yuba City, their families became concerned immediately and called the police. So again, this is where if it's a bunch of 
adults that don't really have an issue, there probably wouldn't raise too many alarms that they went to a college basketball game and didn't come back the next day. I mean, what are your thoughts immediately if just a normal group of guys, they probably went out drinking, got a hotel, and stayed the night. But they were expected to be home to start this 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 tournament. So immediately the sheriff's department began searching for him. So just to recap, they went from Yuba to Chico for a college basketball game. They stopped at a convenience store on their way back. The game ended about 10. So they would have got back probably around midnight, you know, if they're a little later, 12.30, 1 a.m. Uh, and they had a very important basketball tournament they were playing in over the weekend that they're supposed to supposed to be a part of. Sheriff's Department starts searching. So we're going to now fast forward. There weren't any more updates till Tuesday, February 28th. This is when a forest ranger found Jack Madruga's car abandoned. So this is a forest ranger in the National Forest. The vehicle was a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego. It was on an unpaved road near Oroville in the Rogers Cow Camp area past Elk Retreat at an elevation of 4,500 feet. So this is in the National Forest, and it was located around a two and a half hour drive from Chico in the opposite direction of the route they're supposed to drive home and way up in the mountains in the Plumas National Forest. Mike, I know you looked at a map. I think Chico was north, correct? North of Yuba? Um, yeah, Chico's north, <clears throat> a little bit north, I would say north and slightly west. Okay, so of I mean, they, Yuba City. they had it's in the freeway there is a straight south drive. Yeah. That they would have went. So they went even farther north, twice the distance, essentially, in the wrong direction, up in the mountains, and then aban- and then their car was abandoned. It's pretty incredible. Like they, they drove twice the distance in the wrong direction. So the Plumas National Forest, again, is a 1.5 million acre national forest. Uh, we talked about that. It's unique. The location is unique because if you look at Yuba on the map, it is south of Chico, both on the same highway. So again, it's extremely easy to get back and forth. It's basically you get on the highway and go all the way and you get off in the city. So getting back on the highway to head south, it would be, you know, it would make more sense if they got lost somewhere on the way south because the highway doesn't continue the way they went. During the investigation, the police did not find anything that would make someone think foul play occurred. So the car was unlocked. One window was down and the keys were missing. The candy wrappers from the things they bought, the milk cartons and the basketball programs were in the car and maps were left in the glove compartment. So they did have maps and the directions to get to and from their destination and where they wanted to go home. So there was no obvious damage to the car, which was a big deal because they said the road they were on was super bumpy and unmade. So basically it was a road that you should be driving in a four-wheel or four-wheel drive vehicle on like jeeping type of thing. So they must have been driving slow or something because they would have expected there to be damage on the car. That was noted in the police report. So obviously the road was bad enough that they were surprised that this Mercury Montego made it as far as it did with no bumps or anything essentially. They had a quarter tank of gas and they were not stuck in the snow. Basically, what confused investigators is that the driver either used astonishingly amount of care or precision or knew the road well enough to anticipate every single rut. It's pretty incredible. And then they had gas and they weren't stuck. 
So they're high up enough and there was some snow available on the ground. They essentially abandoned a fully functional car is yeah. what they're really looking at. And that's kind of what confused them. It's like you have this car of guys, they're either lost or something, and they left the car that had gas, that wasn't stuck, that wasn't damaged. Yeah. So very, very, very confusing to investigators working on this. So now we have a big gap where basically a search was occurring and they didn't have any updates. So from February 28th to March 3rd, we're going to be talking about Rangers searched the area for five days, found no trace of the men. To make things worse, soon after the search started, a severe blizzard moved into the area. And they got nine inches of snow that dropped in the upper mountains. So this is going to obviously hinder any of the search efforts that they that they had. The search teams had so many issues that they stated that they nearly lost men themselves two days later. They had these things called snowcats that were having issues. These are like the boxy vehicles with tank tracks for snow. And I'm trying yeah. to think of the... Do you remember the movie Goldeneye, the James Bond movie? I do. It's it's. Do you remember those things that they had when they were in like Siberia? Yep. That's what they're talking about. So they had these snowcats, these things that could basically navigate all this. So they were really bringing out some of the right equipment and they, they knew the area well enough that they're going to get a decent search and even though that they had the blizzard going on. So as the news of the disappearance spread, Joseph Scans contacted the police to say he had seen the men between 11 p.m. and 12 p.m. on that Friday. So we now also have a guy that saw the news coming and said, you know, hey, I actually saw these guys from 11 to noon. So that would also fall in line with the time frame of the drive somewhat after they left that that shop. So they saw them uh, 11 p.m. to like 12 a.m.? Yeah, yeah. I did say yeah. 12 p.m. I, I meant okay. a.m. But he saw them in that window and he estimated the time because we're talking it's it's a week or two later when he calls in after he sees the news. So he was driving up a gravel road to his cabin when his car became stuck in the snow. And unfortunately, while trying to push his car out, he suffered a heart attack. Oh, so no. this is this is where this is where this and this is why. I don't want to say I like this story, but this is what really got me for this story. So the rub for this is there are two different versions of this story, both of which are weird and somewhat creepy. All right. (laughs) Version one. And they come from this guy who suffered a heart attack. And did he die from the heart attack? He did not die from the heart attack. And so this is... I guess, yeah, he told the story. Yeah, (laughs) he told the story, but still it's, it's... this is going to blow your mind because I know you didn't read this yet. In one version, while Joe is laying in his car suffering from his apparent heart attack, he saw two sets of headlights coming up behind him. One was a car and the other was a pickup truck. He got out of his car to flag them down, obviously because he's having medical issues. The two vehicles both stopped, what he said about 20 feet from him. The passengers got out, then left together in one car. Joe spent the rest of the night in his car before walking back down the mountain in the morning. So this, so, okay, let's recap version one. Joe Scons is having a heart attack. Now, remember, Joe Scons is this guy who contacted police saying he saw the group. So he's not part of the group. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try and keep recapping as much as possible because there's a lot of actors in this story. Joe gets stuck on this road. Again, this is the road where... This group of five that are developmentally disabled drove up with no issue. This guy has a cabin here and had issues driving up this road. He got stuck in the snow. 
He was trying to push his car out of being stuck when he suffered a heart attack. He's laying in his car, having a heart attack apparently, when he sees headlights come up thinking he's got some sort of salvation or he's going to get help. He flags them down. Both cars stop. The people exit the cars, all enter into one car and just simply drive away, which means they left (laughs) the pickup truck there apparently. Then this guy who's having a heart attack spent the night having his heart attack in his car and walked out to get help and survived. So that's version one. The second version, which is more mysterious, while laying inside the car, Joe said he heard whistling noises and saw what he thought was a group of men and a woman with a baby walking in the light of another vehicle's headlights. Joe called for help and the lights turned off and the whistling sound stopped. A few hours later, he saw flashlight beams outside of his car and called out for help again. But immediately, the lights went out. Joe Scon stayed in his car until it ran out of gas. Then he walked the eight miles down the mountain, passing Jack Madruga's car on the way, which he said he didn't think about much of it when he'd seen it until he heard about the disappearance. That so, is bizarre. So... <laughs> What would appear to be a corroboration of the truck version of the story, there was a woman who reported seeing the five men in a red pickup truck on Saturday and Sunday, about an hour's drive from the site of their abandoned car. Now, this lady, she owned a store in town where they were. She said two of the men came in to buy food. One of them made a phone call from a nearby phone booth, and the other two stayed in the truck. This was the last report we would hear about that for several months. Huh. So this is, I mean, if you could imagine being an investigator on this case, what is going on? You have to immediately start thinking about the credibility of your witnesses. You have to start then realizing that both those stories that Joe Scons told are ridiculous. But you have one where it's kind of corroborated where a woman reports seeing them in a red pickup truck later on in that weekend. I guess I'm confused with the part that the the guy gave two different stories did from your research did it say why he told the first story and then changed it we'll we'll get uh, in that we'll get into that in a bit and that's where i <laughs> okay. was i also thought it might have been to where i always have to take all the information we get with a grain of salt because yeah it's i mean by the time we're getting this stuff especially in these old cases a lot of the stuff will come from, if the police reports don't have it, news article clippings. So you have that issue where, like we said earlier, if anyone's ever had an interview done, if you've had your five minutes of fame or you've done something and you've talked for 20 minutes to a news reporter and they play literally five seconds of it. So like, are they cutting it down? Like what's happening? So there's a lot of things that you have to consider here. What I do is try and distill both versions of the story and realize that both versions are both crazy. They really are. Mm -hmm. And then the one with the pickup truck seems to be corroborated again by this woman where you start thinking, okay, maybe they weren't a pickup truck. This guy's calling out. They are disabled. So maybe they think of it as maybe threatening and they quick drive away. But why are they in a pickup truck? They were in their car. They left like, and that's, that's where you kind of get in the whole concept of, what is going on in that mountainside that night that all these <laughs> weird things are happening and you have these guys changing vehicles, leaving their vehicle, showing up in the next couple of days, driving around, going like making phone calls, going to the store. 
one thing that makes me believe that this woman noted them is it's a group of five guys is going to be noticeable, especially if they're kind of acting developmentally disabled. You're going to remember those types of people. And that's what really makes it stick out. Whereas if it was just like a couple of buddies or like one guy, they might be overlooked very easily. Well, yeah, that's, um, you know, puzzling. And, you know, I'm kind of going through my head of all the scenarios I could think of what could be going on here. First of all, like you said, it's, it's February in, you know, the mountains. So there's snow on the ground. Looking at a 1969 Mercury Montego, you would not want to take that thing off-roading. It's, it, you know, it's like one of your big boat type uh, classic cars from the 60s. Yeah. I'm sure it's probably rear-wheel drive, probably terrible in the snow. Definitely not something you'd, you'd take off-roading. So why they would even be out in the National Forest, because I actually looked up the campsite that they their car was found near. You know, it, it's pretty, you know, deep into the Plumas National Forest. So it, it's not like on the fringe. They needed special trucks to get there. And when they specifically note that this must have been a skilled driver, that's when you start thinking again, not making fun, but you have a group of developmentally disabled people. Only two of them are capable of getting a license. Were they with another person? Was someone else driving that car for them? And now, like like you said, I, I don't know the whole timeline, so I, I could be could be wrong. But you know, the first things that come to my mind are: did they did something happen to them in Yuba or Chico, where their car was stolen, and then did it get ditched up in the you know, national forest? Because you know, it's winter; it's up in the mountains. I, you know, the it sounds like they weren't prepared to spend even one night out in the wilderness. So they're not going to be prepared for cold weather, uh, you know, the elements. So I I can't imagine them just, you know, on their own driving out into the woods. I have a feeling there's got to be some foul play involved. And now when it comes to this other guy, what would you say his name was? Jack? Joe Scans. Or Joseph. Joe Scan. I have to wonder, you know, he's having a heart attack. He's obviously in distress could he have maybe hallucinated some of these? <laughs> that's that's what I was wondering too because I couldn't find like a medical report. Like, yeah, because I was an EMT. From what I know about heart attacks, is you don't recover from them on your own typically. Like, yeah. when your heart muscle dies, it dies. Unless you're a pregnant woman, you know, pregnant women. Um, it's a it's a it's a. This is actually a really neat phenomenon. You can look up separately here. Um, the fetus of a pregnant woman will send stem cells back and actually can repair a woman's heart if they have a heart attack. But that's pretty much the only time that you can get repaired heart muscle from a heart attack is if you're pregnant. Yeah. So if he's having a heart attack through the night, it, I, I don't know if it's actually a heart attack or maybe a panic attack or something else where he just got chest pain. You read my mind. So I'm thinking like, okay, he says he had a heart attack. We, we can't find any evidence through publicly available information that says he had a heart attack, but just, you know, common sense from everything we know. I I just can't imagine a guy having a heart attack, staying there all night and then hiking down the mountain. Yeah. The amount of stress that puts on your heart, (laughs) like he wouldn't have survived. My hunch is he had some other type of medical issue or, or a, a mental issue where he was hallucinating or it caused him to hallucinate because what he was seeing, 
you know, maybe a car drove by, but in his mind, he thought it stopped and people got out and got into a different car. I guess, you know, the car that was abandoned when there were two cars, were they able to find that abandoned car the next morning ahead of his truck? So they found that car, but you in the first story, you said that he he remembered seeing two cars drive up, both yes. stop. No, it Everybody, was a, it was a car and a truck drove up, both stopped. They both exited one and then got in the other. Yeah, but then it doesn't make mention of like like I think where where you're getting is his car was probably still there. Was there another car there yeah. when they went and recovered? If his it? car got stuck, you would assume the other car is going to be stuck up there too. What was the other car found the next morning? I guess we'll never know because yeah. it, it <laughs> wasn't publicly stated. Um, yeah, just uh, so far, obviously we don't. I don't know the rest of the story, but yeah, it, it's puzzling. Well, and that's where it's. It, it'd be very easy to write him off as like, okay, this is just a guy who's maybe a little like kooky and just tell wants to be important and tell stories. But then you have a separate woman who reported seeing them in a red pickup truck. On Saturday and Sunday, driving around, just hanging out. So you like have some level of cooperation of Joe Scans' story by a completely independent person that's not connected to him at all. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's uh, it's <laughs> puzzling. I'm. It's so bizarre. <laughs> we 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 don't we don't have to sit on this too much longer because I'll I'll my my mind will explode if I just spend the rest <laughs> of the time on this, just trying to figure out what the hell happened that night. Yeah. So now we're going to fast forward to June. So we're getting into more of the summertime. Um, a man riding his motorcycle through the area. So um, it didn't mention, but based on, again, the terrain, I'm guessing this guy was probably just dirt biking through the National Forest. Mm-hmm. He noticed a broken window on a forest service trailer. And the trailer is located about 19 miles up the mountain from where the car was found. So now we're 19 miles up the mountain from where... Uh, the Yuba City 5's car was found. Yeah. Inside the trailer, he found the body of Ted Weir. Okay, this is weird. Um, <laughs> so did the description of, you know, the body found, did it mention anything about, con- you know, obviously it decomposed, but... Oh, oh we're, we're going to get there. Okay. Don't you worry. I just wanted that to sink <laughs> in for you. Yeah, okay. So we found one of the Yuba City 5 in a... Yes. Uh, kind in of a, a forest service trailer. And and this was like, um, to give you an example of, this isn't just like a little tiny trailer. This is like a full outfitted trailer. So we'll go through that a little bit. But, but yeah, this is, again, <laughs> the 20 miles up the mountain. They found the body there. The day after Weir's body was discovered, searchers then found the remains of Madruga and Sterling. So now we have three of the five were found in the area of this trailer. They were okay. found on opposite sides of the road from the trailer. And again, this is roughly, they said it's, they, they keep saying it's roughly 11 and a half to 19 miles from where the car was found. So <laughs> it's, it's, that's a pretty big gap, but I'm guessing these roads are so off roady that it's kind of windy and they don't really have a good estimate there. Yeah. Madruga had been partially eaten by animals and was dragged about 10 feet to a stream. Yeah, okay. He was laid face up. His right hand was curled around his watch. Sterling was in a wooded area, 
scattered over about 50 feet. There was nothing left of him but bones. So this gives an idea of kind of that timeline. And we always talk about in the episodes like, oh, what if an animal had gotten to the... So this is an idea of how you can tell if an animal got... They don't really move the the body away from where it originally was. And it's kind of messy. So whenever we have these stories where people are just disappeared entirely, that's why we always kind of get to the point where it's not an animal. So that's just an example. Two days after that, just off of the same road, but much closer to the trailer, Jackie Hewitt's uh, father found his son's backbone along with a pair of Levi's and rip-soled shoes. So an uh, an assistant sheriff from Plumas County found the skull the next day about a hundred yards downhill from the rest of the bones, which the family dentist, the family dentist used to identify the remains. So that's how they knew that it was, is Jackie Hewitt. So now we found four of the five. Correct. Hewitt's remains were located Northeast of the trailer, just like Sterling's and Madruga. So now we have four accounted for one in the trailer. Three more were Northeast of the trailer, several hundred feet away. Northwest of the trailer, about a quarter mile away, Searchers found three wool four service blankets and two and a two cell flashlight lying on the side of the road. The flashlight was slightly rusted and had been turned off. So it was impossible to tell how long it had been there, but it had been there long enough that it was exposed to the elements and rusted a bit. Yeah. Uh, they still haven't found any signs of Gary Matthias. So to recap, we found one guy was in the trailer. Yep. And then there were two guys found on the other side of the road, yeah, one we, had been kind of, one was kind of dragged to the river by animals. The other guy was nothing but bones left. And then the fourth guy, it, there's, there's, yeah, I'm, I'm having struggle. They, they, to they haven't found, they, well, they found the, the backbone and the backbone, the Levi's and the skull. Yeah. And they found the skull a little bit farther away that they, they did, they had to use the dental records to identify him. Okay. Huh? Wow. So those those three were northeast, northwest up the road was they found blankets and a flashlight. They didn't know who it was. They had no sign of so that was Gary they're still looking for Gary. Gary was the last one in the group that they didn't have any any sign of, essentially. So that makes it sound like, you know, someone was trying to, you know, stay warm maybe. Yeah. Like um, or go for help or something. Or go for help. Yeah. Yeah, they interesting. Had blankets and a flashlight, but then where's the body? So here, here's what's crazy, though. Gary's tennis shoes were inside the forest trailer, which suggested to the investigators that he might have taken them off to put on Weir's leather shoes because that's what they found since Weir had bigger feet and Matthias's feet may have been swollen with frostbite. So that's kind of what the investigators were thinking of, that he took bigger shoes so that he could actually go walk around. Although the men's bodies were heavily decomposed, Autopsy results determined that they had likely died from the exposure. So they had died from the outside. So right now everyone's probably thinking, why is this a locations unknown episode? We kind of have an idea. These guys were mentally handicapped. They may have got lost. They may have gone to, they found this place and were just kind of wandering around until they died. I would normally agree with you until you learn a little bit more about what happened. So it appeared that Ted had lived 8 to 13 weeks after his disappearance based on the length of his beard and around a 100-pound weight loss. So he weighed just 120 pounds at the time of his death. 
several bed sheets and a shroud were tightly tucked over his body. That indicates that someone else had been there with him in the trailer as he couldn't have bundled himself up that way. So if you, if you imagine like I got kids, I tuck them in real tight for fun. Like they can't do that by themselves. So he was tucked in a way that someone else had to do it for him. So his leather shoes were taken off, as we said, and were missing entirely. And they still had Gary Mathias's shoes there. So that's where they came to the conclusion that Gary left his tennis shoes there and probably took Ted's as Ted had bigger feet. And they said the only reason you'd do that is if your feet were swollen from frostbite, potentially. So that's where they got that idea from. So a table by the bed held his nickel ring with the words Ted engraved on it, his gold, necklet, his gold necklace, his wallet with cash inside, and a gold Watham watch that was not property of any of the men, and its crystal was missing, which the families say that had... The families say had not belonged to any of the five men and Ted's feet were fed, were badly frostbitten. What that leads me to believe is there wasn't really a robbery or they weren't being held hostage because all of their personal belongings were there and apparently a gold watch that wasn't even theirs to begin with was there. They made it up this mountain somewhere between 12 and 19 miles in, through the snow up the mountain to this trailer. And were there for several weeks, apparently, even though we have eyewitness statements that they were in a truck from two different people. This is where the story is very strange already. We have conflicting accounts from that night, stories that sound from paranormal, from a shaky source. That's like, to me, like the whistling and the baby and the woman are like very weird paranormal type stuff. But then we have another story corroborated by a woman who claims we've seen the men. This is where it gets even weirder than that. Inside the trailer, authorities found heavy clothing, matches, playing cards, books, wooden furniture, and other materials that can easily be used to start a fire. But there had been a no apparent attempt to start a fire despite the freezing temperatures in the mountains. A propane tank connected to the trailer which would have uh, was connected and full, which would obviously provided a ready source of heat and cooking fuel, was completely untouched. So this is a trailer that is meant to be lived in in winter conditions. This Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers said all they would have had to do is turn the gas on, and they would have and they would have had heat in the trailer, and they could have cooked. Now, now get this: next to the trailer in a storage shed outside, there is a year supply of sea rations. <laughs> So they're individually canned, pre-cooked, and pre-prepared meals issued for the U.S. military. The men consumed 36 of the meals and left the majority of them untouched. So they had access to food, yet you have Ted basically wasting away in bed, and they left a ton of them untouched. There was a huge supply of freeze-dried meals also. One of the scene rations had been opened with a... Army P-38 can opener. Hmm. So they had ample shelter, ample food, and supplies to survive for up to a year in any condition, essentially. without They wouldn't have had to leave that trailer area. And they were unable to work any of that stuff. And this is where, again... Skeptics might say, okay, they're mentally disabled. Maybe they didn't know what to do. But, I mean, these guys could drive a car. They held jobs. They were in the military. 
I I don't think it would have been beyond them to figure some of that stuff out because those propane tanks again it's you turn knob and now you have propane so you know the thing is there was enough food for them to eat for a year and yes there's evidence to show that they were eating some of the food so they knew where the food was yep they knew that they could eat it they were eating it and like you said why was one of the guys withering away you know 100 pounds of weight loss that just doesn't make sense to me i don't understand there's a year's supply of food there. Why aren't they eating? Why are they? Why did they stay up there for 13 weeks? Um, I'm just kind of rambling off what's coming to my head. Why was there a random watch that didn't belong to all of them? Is there, you know, maybe was there a thir- you know a sixth person with them? You know that that they that was there with them, but you know there's no evidence of it now. Well, and, and why why were their bodies located across the street? Like, I can understand the one, well, and they'd even find the body still, but there was a flashlight and blankets up the road, so okay, maybe one attempted to go find help. The other two, I mean, they were within several feet of the trailer. Did they crawl outside to die? Like, what? what's, what's happening to this group? Yeah, you know, so I'm going to go straight into conspiracy okay do it like paranormal paranormal it's our first show back it's going for it the one thing i can't you know settle on is why they're up there that i don't think we'll we'll know why did they drive you know deviate from their plan of you know going to the basketball tournament the next day and go you know deep into the national forest in the middle of winter in a you know a classic muscle car type of, you know, type of car, something that shouldn't be out there. Well, and, and the to make it simpler again, you know, just to reiterate Chico to Yuba city is straight down. I have it written down here, straight down highway 70 through central Valley in low lying land with no snow at that time of year. So it's, it's around an hour of a drive, but they ended up going complete opposite direction through the snow in the mountains, which again, even if you're, you know, mentally challenged or disabled you should know if you're going through mountains or if you're supposed to be on a freeway especially at their comprehension level what about this <laughs> so they, they drive into the, the woods for unknown reasons their car breaks down they they decide for some reason to head i think you said they had to, went north like 19 miles yeah. Or that's where this trailer was. What if something was pursuing them or scared them and they decided to head north, you know, to get away from it and they hit this trailer, whatever was pursuing them pursued them to this location and they were scared to leave it. And they held up here for as long as they could, but eventually, you know, something happened and they got you know, disorientated and ran out into the woods and then, you know, succumbed to exposure. It's very X-Files. Yeah, Yeah. well, and you know what? You know what's really (laughs) skewing my my thought process? I just started watching the latest season of Mindhunters on Netflix, so I'm immediately thinking, like, okay, is there a deranged serial killer in that area that, like, toyed with them and tortured them? like locked him up there and like starved him or like, I don't know. Like, so yeah, you have these guys like it's, 
I mean, you've to me, I even wrote down the notes. Like, you, I have a bunch of questions. Like, why did they get lost that night? It's question number one. They went really far the wrong way in the wrong direction in a way that is not even close to the right way. So, like, again, I keep wanting to jump back to the developmental disabilities. Like, okay, maybe if it was a similar road, a similar direction, and they made a wrong turn and they ended up here. No, it's it couldn't have been any different from the ride home. I mean, it's the, it's quite literally the exact opposite. You have this straight south road with no snow. They took this bumpy northern road with snow up the mountains. So it's like you've mountains and valley, snow and no snow, south and north. It couldn't have been more opposite of the way they should have went. And they had maps. They had all the information they needed to get back. I think you can rule out like a robbery or a foul play in the sense that you know, their car wasn't stolen. All of their belongings were found in that trailer, including money. So, you know, someone didn't go in there and murder them and then leave all their valuable possessions behind. That that doesn't make sense. So then, then that brings the question of what happened around the car. So the group's car was left open with gas in the tank, and it was in working order, they said. So they left, they left the car... And the keys were gone, so they took the keys with them. Yeah. So this could explain the story told by Joe Scons, where he said he saw flashlights around the car, like if they abandoned it and were walking. Um, but it didn't say if they had flashlights to begin with. Could they have mm-hmm. been, you know, could they have lost the keys? Like maybe they got out to look around, lost the keys, and they are looking in the snow, and they were freaked out by this Joe Scons guy because they were in an isolated area. Maybe, you know, one, maybe uh, their car got stuck or something and they started walking, walking up the road and maybe another truck or something came by and maybe the weather was really bad that night. And maybe the, you know, they're like, you know what, there's a, you know, forest service trailer up here about 20 miles. How about I, you know, we'll take you there for the night and then, you know, you can get out in the morning when the the storm dies down. Maybe it was something as simple as that. So then that leads me to this woman that saw them Saturday and Sunday in a truck. So they are in a town and one of them apparently made a phone call yet. Obviously it was either she's lying. It was a different group of people because no family member reported taking that phone call on Saturday or Sunday. So if let's, let's say for uh, the first case, yes, it was them for sure. Who did he call and how come they didn't come forward? And if it wasn't them, how odd would it be in that small town area to have five men matching their description in a red truck, which corroborates that Joe Scon story? And my, where uh, did, I mean, where do they go? I, I know my guess is the woman misidentified a group of a group of guys. I think. Um, okay, I'll buy that. You know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm guessing she misidentified him. I don't think they ever came back out of the forest once they drove in there. Okay, so you think they abandoned the car? Do you believe? Do you believe that Joe Scon any part of Joe Scon's story is true? I'd say that even meaning that he claims he saw them. I. So Joe, I Joe Scon's I think had some type of medical emergency. I don't think it was a heart attack based on the fact that he was able to hike out of the mount, you know, out of the woods the next morning. I think he must have. This is just my hunch. He had some type of medical. Uh, emergency that caused him to maybe hallucinate or you know something happened where he wasn't seeing things correctly he may have seen 
maybe he saw a truck with the Yuba five going by, but you know, I mean, maybe he was tired. He's having some type of medical issue. He, maybe he hallucinated hearing this whistling sound and seeing the woman with a baby out in the forest. So that doesn't make sense. I think this is my, my two theories of how they got to the trailer. I, I'll say right now, I have no theory on why they're up in the woods in the first place. That's puzzling. I have no idea. And that's like <laughs> the one thing we can't obviously tell is true because their bodies were there and their car was there. Car was there. So they're in the woods for whatever reason. We will never know why they went into the woods. But so they're in the woods. So we know where the car was. So for some reason, they decided to make a 19-mile hike in the, the middle of the night, I assume, very cold temperatures, February, you know, at elevation to this trailer. So either either they hiked it the whole way or someone driving by gave them a ride to the trailer to, you know, like overnight the storm. The one theory of them getting a ride to the trailer, you know, that that's not very suspenseful. The other theory is why did they stop? Why did they get out? Why did they head north to the trailer? Yeah, with a fully functioning car with gas still. Did something spook them? Was something pursuing them? Were they afraid to go back down the way they came? You know, my first, you know, if I would try to go back the way I came, if I'm not familiar with the area, I don't know that trailer's up there. This is yeah. the 70s. We don't have, you know, we don't have an iPhone where we can pull out and up a map. And well, I think what's important, too, is they noted that the window was rolled down in the car. So if it's cold and snowy outside, maybe they were talking to another car that was coming by and they rolled the window down like, yeah, that, and that's where I think those those little details, I think, really do make a huge difference in the story because they, they they made very careful mention in the investigation that the car wasn't damaged at all. And it, there appeared to be no foul play, meaning that whatever happened was completely under the free will of the men. And they had apparently eaten the food, left it there, rolled a window down at some point which there's snow, it's cold. Yeah. So there should be no reason that the window is just down, especially with the cold weather. So like you said, did they come across somebody? Did they actually try and speak to somebody? They didn't make it as far as Joe Sconza's car because he had mentioned that he had passed their car when he was coming down the mountain. And in his story, that group came up the mountain and passed him and continued up the mountain. And that's where, again, portions of his story actually make sense which would fall in the timeline of them making their way up to where they ended up in that trailer. So I would say, yeah, since Joe didn't see them walk by, I would say that someone must have given them a ride to that trailer. Now, the interesting thing is what happens once they're in the trailer So, and where their bodies were found. So we've got this one guy who lost a lot of weight, even though there was food, you know, a year's worth of food there. You've got the, their bodies kind of dispersed in different locations outside the trailer You've got a random watch from an individual we don't know whose it is. Maybe there's some kind of weird... So maybe the people that gave them a ride up to the trailer, maybe they held them captive there, kind of, you know, against their will. That's kind of where, again, my, my Mindhunters theory is coming into play is like, were they abducted in a complicit way? Meaning where somebody said, hey, you want help getting out of here? And this abductor knew about the cabin, had a truck, and was driving them around, maybe even drove them in the town. And they, they again, being maybe 
a little bit disabled, could have been tricked into thinking he was going to help. And you know what? This So you said the one guy found in the trailer had bad frostbite on his feet. Yeah, they said it, it, was, it was going gangrene. And he had been starved, apparently, even though they had access to the food. Uh, so what about this? So that night they, they start hiking, you know, several miles in the snow and they probably, that's where he probably first got his frostbite. This guy in a truck drives by, picks him up, takes like, all right, this guy, he needs to get you know, to some shelter. They take him to the trailer. They, they get, they, you know, they lay him down. Maybe the next day the, the guys in the, the truck all go into town, leave him in the trailer. Like, we're going to go get you help or whatever. Oh, and that's where they get that's where they get the five guys. It's one new actor, new guy for the group. And then they okay. head back up there okay. and maybe uh, maybe something happens where now they're being held against their will and I mean, I, I, there's no other explanation for why the one guy wasn't eating or why they were up there for 13 weeks. Uh you, you know, you would you would try to come back down. I mean, that's why I think maybe they were held against their will. Here's all right, so here's the rub on that. Where's Gary? Gary's body has never been found. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's where did he get away? Um, like, were all those bodies far away because they were trying to escape? And Gary did, but then he probably died of exposure somewhere else. And they just never so found now, his body. Now, keep keep in mind, though, Gary was taking medication for schizophrenia. And he had a history, he had a history of lapsing on his drugs, which would put him into a disoriented psychosis. So that, that again, this is where it's crazy, you know, could he have been responsible for some of this? Maybe he was off his meds, they get stuck out there, or maybe, let's, let's put it this way, maybe he's on his meds, but they expected to be home, he's now several days to weeks off of his meds is he causing issues like attacking the others like kind of losing it yeah maybe what happens is he after several weeks which i it still doesn't explain why they're up there for that long but maybe he starts going you know into that psychosis and he the other guys run out of the trailer and he pursues them and you know kills them yeah and then that's why you're finding their bodies in different spots outside of the trailer. I mean, they say they died from exposure, so. Well, and that's where it's, and that's where, again, there wasn't really clear police reports or coroner's report to say, I'm sure if they found a skull with blunt force trauma, maybe. But if they've been out there long enough decomposing and animals had gotten at it, is it possible that it could have covered up some sort of traumatic blunt force that, would have rendered them incapacitated to where maybe uh, again, this is all theory speculation, speculation from me, speculation. That's not a word speculation, but let's say he goes in this deep psychosis. The men were eating, but this guy has a complete mental psychosis breakdown, starts attacking them in some way. They go running to try and avoid it. He hits them with something, knocks them out, gets the other one, knocks them out. Uh, leaves their bodies there and then weather and animals and time take their toll. He stops feeding Ted. Maybe, so maybe to your story, maybe Ted got frostbite on the way up. Can't really walk. He's just bedridden. And now his only caretaker is in this mental state of psychosis. So he's essentially starving to death in this trailer 
incapacitated yeah. by gangrene, frostbitten legs. So he's probably got a fever, probably the sweats, incapable of taking care of himself even if he wanted to. And then you have, so you have, that accounts for three men where he attacked outside, one stuck in there. He's the fourth. Does he in the psychosis then, he's got these dead bodies of his friends. Is he some, some point coming out of the psychosis at some point, wraps himself in some blankets, grabs a flashlight, and then walks off trying to figure out what's going on. Again, yeah. not in a clear, you, you got to think not in a clear mental state if he's off his meds and has prone to these psychoses. And he's dead of exposure somewhere too, but they just have yet to find the body. Um, you said there were a lot of canyons and, and things in this area. Could he have just wandered off into the night yeah. one day? And then that's it. That's that's where Gary is. Yeah, I just, I you know, 13 weeks, you know, three months. So they went, they went missing on, you said February 20, um, 24th. So you're talking, you know, it's getting in the May now, you know, why aren't they walking out? (laughs) Yeah. You've got all this. I, I just, I, I know we literally say this after every episode we do, but this is by far the most puzzling case we've done. Yeah, it's uh, it's so weird, and it's it's there's usually it makes there's you usually wonder. a reason why. What I was saying is, in a lot of the cases we do, there's a reason why the person was in the location they were. They were there on a trip hiking, or they were doing this or that. Yeah, we have these five guys that were in the the forest for no apparent reason in a time of the year where you you wouldn't want to be there, completely unprepared. So we know they didn't go into the woods on purpose. So already right off the bat, we don't even know why they're there, which is even unusual for the cases we look at because you know all the people are in the woods for a reason usually. So so do you want to hear? You know, do you want to hear the maternal instincts of Jack Madruga's mom? So this is a quote from her. She said, "There must have been some force that made him go up there. They wouldn't have fled off in the wood like a bunch of quail." We know good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand in those five men, but we know it must have been. They seen something at that game, at that parking lot, says Ted Weir's sister-in-law. They might have seen it and didn't realize they've even seen it. So this is the family. Their gut instinct is they saw something or got into something they shouldn't have. They made him go up there. And so think, let's think mafia. They saw a mafia hit. They get driven up there. You know, maybe, maybe they took them from that store Yeah. and, and with a truck and someone drove their car, they parked the car, chucked yeah. the keys, then drove them up to that thing. Uh, I then don't know. Held them captive. Held them captive. I don't know. And yeah. Again, that's, that, that's just the gut instinct of the family and the quotes that the family had said. Well, that goes along my my paranormal theory that something spooked them and chased them up to that trailer, and they were afraid to leave it. And it, it whatever it was, eventually got them after you know several weeks. <laughs> could have could have been aliens, the whistling aliens, sounds, the whistling sounds, and the yeah. Um, I'm thoroughly <laughs> as confused as I was before I knew the timeline. I know it's 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 that's where. At least in a lot of these cases, I mean, I think we always say the case could either be died of exposure, died from animal attack, 
or some other like simplistic explanation. They're abductive. Yeah, there's so many different facts and reports from this case and then contradicting but corroborating statements that I feel like this is really open-ended. I don't feel confident in any answer here. It's it's very similar to our, our last case where the guy disappeared in like a 600-foot area on a mountain. Yeah. Like my, my end-up result was he wanted to get lost and the whole story was fake. This one, it's like, I'm thinking of Mindhunter. There's a serial killer in that wood somewhere, and he held these people captive and tortured them yep. and preyed on them from Chico yeah. and got them from there somehow. He coaxed them up in the mountains somehow, or a group of people did. And yeah. Joe Scons is just kind of a crazy dude who lives up in the mountains and wanted to be a part of the action, so he made up these two separate stories. Again, you have this guy who is two, two different, completely, and they're not even... I mean, this, the only thing close about it is that he saw them and they walked up and lights turned off. Yeah. But other than that, it's very different versions. And you from said the same he guy. came fo- he came forward with this information after it was known these guys were missing. Yeah. So, so it, you he, know, it's another one of those cases of, you know, you you know that these people are missing. So either yeah, like you said, you're trying to involve yourself in the case or you may have seen other people and you just kind of naturally assume it's the people that are missing because you or just heard about Scott's it. Or is this Joe Scans, the guy who did it and they just weren't good at <laughs> investigating <laughs> right? that stuff back then? I mean, like, I mean, is it he involved himself in the case because he's the one that did it and he got away with it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we'll, uh, <laughs> we're ever going to know the answer to this one. Um, but yeah, wow. What an just... unsatisfying show. I mean, way really to think start about off it? the new season of episodes with one that we really can't can't solve. I'm any just saying about this. It. Our whole our like the locations and known in general. How unsatisfying are all these episodes where we just never really know what happened? I mean, they all end the same way. Honestly, like though, but I still the, love. I love researching every single one of them. I do. A lot of the other cases though have you know probably three plausible three or four plausible theories that I could see happening. This one, I, I don't have any clue what, uh, it, you know, I guess the closest theory we got is they were held against their will for, you know, three months and then killed. And then one, and one guy's (laughs) gone and And one guy's gone. Yeah. And one guy never was found. So yeah. Well, um, (laughs) great first episode. (laughs) I know. I'd say with that, Thank you for tuning in. Sorry for making your day awful. No. <laughs> Make sure to, you know, give us a like or a, you know, a review on um, iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. It, you know, if you want to help the show out, we've got a store on Facebook. You can buy some hats and, you know, bumper stickers there. Uh, email us locationsunknown at gmail.com with any comments, criticisms, you know, if you know any of the people involved in the cases we're talking about, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, with that, uh, thank you for tuning in, and uh, it's good to be back, Joe. It's great to be back, and always remember when you're out in the woods, leave no trace. Bye.